0: Welcome to Business Conversations with your host, business strategist, Clive Ennevar. Clive is joined by expert guests as they talk business behind the scenes to give you the tools and insights to support your growth, security, and serenity as you strive for your success. Welcome to another episode of Business Conversations with Clive Ennevar. I am Clive a business strategist, and we're having a conversation with Lee Rust about how he quadrupled his market share in three years. During the last 10 years, Lee has scaled a multi-million dollar Louvre window manufacturing business, starting from working in a household garage. Now his plans include expanding into New Zealand and opening a plant in Asia, all the while continuing to improve work-life balance. Hello, Lee, and welcome. Thank you. Work-life balance getting improved, Lee, while you're planning to open in New Zealand and
1: Asia. How on earth are you doing that? Well, it's a difficult one, but I have a little system I sort of set into place. Um, It's called blocks. A lot of people probably do this already. But I just like to block my days, my weeks, and my months into sections. So the morning, I have a morning routine, which is from 5 a.m. to around 7 a.m., where I get up, train, do some meditation and things like that. And that's called my morning block. So what I do is I block that out for myself. Then I'll come home, and I've got a block of family time. And then, obviously, after the family times, kids are at school. I have another block, which is work. Um, When I'm at work, I work. So I basically, I have these blocks throughout the day, which I try and keep really clean and clear. And when I'm in those blocks, that's all I'm doing and focusing on. Obviously with the travel to New Zealand and Asia, it becomes a little bit more tricky. Um, But again, I just try and streamline my approach to that and just block out a week in Asia so that I can minimize the time away from my family.
0: Very good. So we don't have white space staring at us from our uh, calendar. No, it's, it's very much full. <laughs> <laughs> and let's explore that for a moment, Lee, for the benefit of people who might not have uh, heard of that particular method of doing things. Have you noticed um, a measurable increase in what you're actually able to
1: achieve through doing that, undertaking that activity? Yeah, I definitely do. I think it's it's just about being present and being in that moment I, you know previously I'd get pulled from pillar to post with you know my trying to do stuff for home life, trying to do work and it was all just getting this big big mixed you know mixed up sort of mess so when I started these blocks and I, it's you have to be quite strict so when I am at, at home my phone is away in the drawer so there's no work emails there's nothing going on and you definitely notice some productivity because when I did get to my work block I knew I had, say, six or seven hours where I probably had 12 hours' worth of work to do. So I had to have no distractions, just get in and get it done. And I think knowing that when you leave that work block and you're going home that you're not going to touch that phone again or that email, you, you do become more productive in that time because you know that's, that's the time you need to hit it. And, of course, uh, you've got uh,
0: kiddies that you're homeschooling at the moment. How are you finding that
1: they react to your block? Well, I think my blocks have become a bit mixed and mashed because of this current climate, definitely. Uh, My blocks have become a bit open. But it's been, I think if anyone says it's been easy, it's probably not the truth. It's very difficult. Um, You know, we just take it day by day with this. I have created blocks for my son who is at school. So he has a nine till 10 o'clock where he has to do his English. And then he has a 12 to one where he does his maths. And we've given him those blocks to say, okay, you do anything outside of those blocks, you've got free time. So he's sort of adapting my method without willingly knowing. So it's it's good.
0: (laughs) Good work. Good work. (laughs) And for the benefit of listeners who might be listening to this at another time, The reason, Lee, is homeschooling is because we're right in the middle of the shutdown for the COVID-19 pandemic, which will no doubt pass and hopefully pass very, very soon. But work-life balance, Lee, a lot of people seem to think that it's 50-50. Is that what you find?
1: No, definitely not. I don't think it's 50-50. Work does take a massive part in you know, you're trying to create a life for your family, the ideal life that you want. So work does tend to, you know, sneak in and and take a bit more percentage than that, Um, which is, it's sort of, it's difficult because you want to, you drag between, obviously I want to be at home with my kids. That's my priority in life. But work needs me to build the business to where I need to go. So the the balance definitely isn't 50-50. But again, that's why, you know, when I get to the weekend, I just shut off, and those two days are family, so I try and get that that percentage of you know work life balance right.
0: Very good, because uh, lots of people that I work with, they have very differing uh, balance with between their work and their life. and as you say, when you're at work, you're at work, when you're at home, you're at home. Mm. and it you mentioned earlier being present to make sure that happens. so.
1: Is there a skill to being present? Oh, I think it's just a constant work. I think it's something you need to work on continually. And I think the skill is you need to practice a lot of mindfulness, I believe, in my my thoughts. So, you know, meditation and, and things like that definitely helps with being present. But um, I think it's just a constant a constant work in progress, that one. <laughs>
0: Very good. And you've been working on that for quite some time because – Tell us a little bit about how you created this business in the first place, and then how you quadrupled—that
1: I did say quadrupled—your market share in three years. Correct. Yeah. Well, from the first question, I guess how did we start? It was a—it was a long road, but I'll sort of try to summarise it quickly. But I left school, and my father owns a quite successful business called Vergola, New South Wales, which is an opening and closing roof business. And I just left school and figured I'd just work for dad and I'd eventually take over dad's business. But that wasn't to be. He sent me away and said, no, go get a real job. So I became a mechanic apprentice for four years, got greasy and dirty and realized I can't continue to do this forever. So I left there and then wanted to go work for dad. And he said, sure, start in the factory. (laughs) So I started in the factory and had to earn my stripes basically. um, And then sort of realized that Dad's business was dad's business. No matter what I did or took over, it was never going to be mine. And that didn't really fulfill me at all. So we sort of ventured out, stumbled across this product in France, brought it back, had really no capital to to begin. So we started in the two car garage, just my brother and myself. And we fumbled around for a couple of years trying to find the right marketing strategies and the ways to get this product to market. And eventually... We, you know, just, we grew it from fabricators to builders, to homeowners, and then we moved into the commercial sector. And that was sort of the light bulb moment that this product was perfect for that sector. And it was a little bit of a marriage. And that's sort of where we, we came to today. Just to give us a,
0: a better understanding of what this business is you're building. What is the product? So
1: safety line, Jalousie, it's a high performance louver system. So the product was developed in France by a group called TechNow, uh, one of the largest aluminum companies in the world. And basically it sets from all basic louvers on the market, we have the highest wind, water, acoustics, all these uh, performance metrics, we're one of the highest rating in the world. And it's a, it's a louver window system, it's perfect for education, health, aged care, multi-res, high-rise type buildings, where louvers usually couldn't be used in these scenarios because of the performance, this product fits perfectly.
0: So you found yourself uh, with a very broad market that you can, well, put
1: forward your products to. Yeah, correct. Yeah, we've um, we sort of have niched it over the years to like more specific sectors, as in education, health, and multi-res. We feel that the product performance suits that criteria, so that's sort of where our main focus is. And you mentioned when you
0: were realising, recognising that if you did take over dad's business, it would never be yours and that left you feeling somewhat unfulfilled. How do you feel now that you're putting in all of these hours, all of these years, building this business in terms
1: of fulfilment? Oh, definitely. It's definitely a self, uh, you know, self-worth, self-achievement. I'm very goal-driven. So from, watching me build watching my dad build nothing from something to what it is, you know, that was like, wow That's amazing. But then to do it myself It's a whole nother a whole nother level of achievement and I think I've always been quite ambitious and driven and and to see this business go from nothing to where it is in 10 years And partnering with some of the biggest companies in australia like the likes of Meriton and mervac and and phrases and these kind of things it's it's yeah. I have to sort of pinch myself sometimes and think, wow, did I actually do this? (laughs) (laughs) And
0: just to give yourself something to feel good about, at some point you decided that across three years you were actually going to quadruple your
1: market share. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, again, this was sort of realizing where the product was really suited for and finding out the, the niche in the market where we, where we really fit. I think if you have this shotgun approach to the market, you know, you get wins all over the place. But until we sort of really, you know, positioned it in the exact market we wanted, then we realized who the big players are. It's that 80-20 rule. You know, there's 20% 20 of the guys doing 80% of the work. So that's where we focused our, share, our, our market share on. So we reached out to the you know, government departments, Meriton, Mervac, Fraser, all the big, big developers. And that's how, we, that's how we got our real growth because those guys are doing not just one project. They might be doing 100 projects across the year. So we figured if we become a standard item with those guys and really partner up uh, strategically with them, that's how we could get our growth. And, and luckily enough, we did. So recognizing
0: opportunities is rather important in business. Very, very important, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Once you'd recognised the opportunity, Lee, I imagine there were considerable operational changes. How did how did you
1: handle those? Yeah, definitely. We had to obviously our back end had to be prepared for what the front end was was going to bring in, and if we were going to align ourselves with the larger companies we had to make sure we had everything in order from you know legal requirements to to safety requirements and we also had to have the capacity because if we promise something up front but can't deliver that's that's your reputation gone and your business will pretty much go with it so we made sure we had the our operations set up we increased production capacity so that when these jobs did land we were ready to go so for a while there we were very heavily you know, probably uh, too many overheads going on for what we were bringing in, but we had the foresight to know and hope that the bigger contracts would land, and they did.
0: So we had a little bit of hope, but uh, I I noticed the first thing you mentioned was that you knew.
1: Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't think you sort of counting the chickens before they hatch. So we, you know, we'd obviously had meetings, and there was some early design stage of work happening. So there was stuff in the pipeline that we knew that was coming in. So it was a it was a risk, but it was a um uh what's the word? It was a a measured risk.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes.
0: Risk is only scary when it's not measured, isn't it? That's right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so you had to ramp up the back end, make sure that you could produce enough. What about the people at the front, the ones looking to bring in the business? How did they cope with this change, which obviously would have been massive in terms of the volume of uh, items required and, of course, the, the price changes? Lots of people in business seem to worry if the price changes
1: or the value of an order. How did your front end cope with that? Well I think I think they just adapted to the change they we implemented sort of different procedures and different pricing structures to allow them to have sort of movement if they needed to in in their dealings with these larger companies because when you're talking about volume it's obviously a lot different than a single one off order you're talking about hundreds of orders at once so from a management level we gave them you know a bandwidth to work within which gave them more flexibility which I, get, I think gave them more confidence to be able to deal with the, the larger clients. Um, we also put in back end supports for them, so we have you know offshore estimators helping them prepare the quotes and going through all the contracts. So we yeah we backed up the factory, but we also backed up the the sales side of things as well. So planning was rather important in all of this. I think planning is key in most things. <laughs>
0: so once once you've got your plans right you presenting those to your people back end and front end does that give them enough confidence then to go out and just do it or are there pitfalls for us to look out on uh, along the way if we think well if lee could quadruple his market share
1: in three years i can too yeah I think there's there's many pitfalls along the way but I think it's about being really clear and defined in what you do as in what your product or service is and what market that needs to go to you need to be clear on your who your ideal client is and what your ideal service or or provider is because if you don't have that clear I think it's there's too many paths for you to, to deviate across, you need to be clear and direct, and that path is the path. You, obviously, there's might be some speed bumps along the way, but the end goal needs to be the same. You need to push forward, and you need to drive. And from a, a cultural point, from the top being the owner, you can't you can't deviate from that path because otherwise, the staff will be like, oh, well, you know, they get it's it's not clear. So I think find the right market, be clear, be decisive, and just and And the culture needs to be, everyone needs to be with you and just keep that drive going.
0: Uncertainty seems to make those bright, shiny objects more bright and more shiny. It
1: certainly does. It certainly does.
0: (laughs) So you've got to make that uh, end goal brighter and shinier than anything else. Correct. What do you think allowed you to actually transfer your vision across to your people, to take...
1: Bring your people along with you on this journey. I think it's, to be honest, it's the energy and the passion. When you deliver this, your goal or your, you know, your end result, if, if, if they can feel that you believe it, you, know, you have to believe it. Otherwise, your staff won't believe it. So you, from the top, you just have to show that passion and energy and that drive and the willingness that no never means no. There's always another option. So, you know, sales guys will be like, oh, but Meriton said we can't see them. Well, that's, that doesn't mean we can't see them. It means we need to find another way to see them. So I think it's the passion and the energy that comes from the top, you know, then the passion and the energy from your staff comes back up to the top as well. So it's a, it's a circle. Grows upon itself. Enthusiasm and
0: excitement yeah. and clear vision all grows upon itself, doesn't it? Yes, correct. In growing this business, okay, you use the block method to make sure that you've got time for family and time for business and, you know, a clear understanding of that. Was there anything in particular you had
1: to give up in order to get to this level? I think I think every business owner will say the same. There's many sacrifices you have to make along the way to, to get to your goals. But if your goal is strong enough, then, you know, the sacrifices won't be so big in the end. But yeah, I I gave up my life in Sydney. I moved my, uh, me and my wife moved up to Queensland to start the Queensland operations because Queensland is known as the Louvre market. So we thought that was the best place to start. So I packed up my house, left and moved up there for 18 months to get the business going. So that was a sacrifice in itself. Um, You also give up time with family and friends because because of the hours you're doing and, and things like that. So yeah, I think that's the main thing for me was, moving states and then obviously just the personal time. You know, there's probably some certain personal goals I wanted to achieve with sporting, sporting things like soccer, which I had to sort of put aside for a few years until, until the business is where I needed it to be. And, of course, starting this
0: business in a 2 garage, <laughs> moving to where you are now uh, some 10 years later, You have how many employees at the moment? We have around 40, 40 staff.
1: So you've increased your family considerably. We definitely have. And I've always said that once you work for us, a lot of my staff will tell you they feel like family. I think that's paramount too in building a successful business. The staff need to be believing you. And once they do believe in you, they do become family. And so is there something particular about,
0: employing people, uh, to allow you to retain people that
1: are the right people? I guess I think it comes down to, it sounds a bit cliche, but it's the culture. It's really, it's the, the culture you build from, you know, the, the way you reward staff. It's not just money. Like money is, is one thing to a job for sure. It's the way you treat people. It's the way you reward people. It's the you know, the, the, pizza Fridays we do and the, the monthly barbecues and all these little things that just makes it feel more like home. And my dad always told me, he said, the way you treat your staff or your clients should be the way you want your grandmother to be treated with full respect and people will stay if you do that kind of thing. And it's so true. If, you know, you don't want anyone talking badly to your grandmother. So if you treat your staff and your clients that way, then that, that should be the way that everyone is treated. Good advice. Thank you, dad. Yes.
0: <laughs> so with 40 people on your, your staff, what's the difference between 40 people and 10 people?
1: Well, I think it's the layers. It's um, obviously as, as owners, we like to get to know everyone and treat everyone, you know, the same. But with 40 people, it does become a little bit harder so you need those levels of management i think in place to help to help run the, and look after everyone because if the 25 30 people on the factory floor have their direct manager what they feel like is you know is their boss who really cares then then they've always got someone close to go to so i think it's making sure there's not a big separation between the owner to the factory floor there needs to be levels in between yeah
0: so you're using a, a relatively flat hierarchical model if you like yeah that's correct but keeping that uh, one-to-one contact with as many people as you possibly can definitely definitely as you grew what else caused you to sit back and think seriously long into the night about how this was going to happen how it was happening
1: well yeah obviously family family's a massive thing for me it's I always sat there and didn't want to get caught up in too much of the whole business world and getting sucked into all the, you know, the events and the, you know, time away from the family. So I think sitting there at night, I'd always reflect on what do I ideally want this company to be for me and for my family. I didn't want to get sucked into the company and just become part of it. I always wanted to have my identity, my family identity and the company identity. So I think that's one of the main things that probably still keeps me up at night now is really figuring, trying to find out where the separation is and, you know, when to pull back and when to when to push so that you can keep that sort of work-life, family balance. And does that relate to the concept of working on the business rather than in the business? 110%. So I, I'm a huge believer in working on the business not in the business and that's why i have my management team is you know, exceptionally they, they're fantastic they know that's what i want to do they and they respect that and they don't drag me into the day-to-day uh runnings i guess you could say um which frees me up to be more open-minded and bigger picture thinking and more driven and and to to bring that that energy to them that they need on the bigger picture and i think it's that's definitely definitely very valuable how might somebody out there
0: now thinking of running a business that's a, a bit bigger than what they have whether they have one or not at this stage how might they make sure that they stay in that space working on the business not in the business
1: yeah i think that's a hard one because when you're growing you obviously you know, you've got your hands on your fingers on every on everything but I think it's realizing the time that you need to step back. And if you can employ someone to do certain tasks that allows you to step away, you need to realize that and do that and take that leap of faith and, you know, get, get safe. It's an accounting thing, get an accountant in to do that book entry stuff. That's, you know, that's not really creating money for you. That's already work that's in there. So stuff that's already in the system and moving that's, it's too late to sort of manage that. So you need to, offload those tasks and step away and then become that bigger picture thinker.
0: So you're looking at uh, areas where a task that you might otherwise do can be done by somebody else at less cost compared to the benefit you're going to provide by having those extra hours. Is that how it works? Exactly. Yeah. Delegation, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Glad you mentioned that delegation is an area a lot of people have difficulty with. Have you found particular ways to make delegation easier and more profitable?
1: I think my, most of my staff will tell you I'm the ultimate delegator. So I'm, <laughs> I learned sort of watching my dad grow up, he was the opposite. He liked to do everything himself and I saw how that sort of constricted him a little bit. So as I sort of grew, I think it just became a natural part of my, my management style is, you know, if I trust you and employ you, then you're there for a reason and I'm happy to put those tasks upon you and, and let them go. And, you know, it might not be done the way I want it done exactly, but I trust you to do it and get the same outcome. So I think for me, delegation was quite, quite an easy easy tool to use but it it isn't really an efficient tool as well you have specialists in specialist areas let them do it so essentially
0: you're looking at uh, delivering the outcome not necessarily ensuring it was done precisely how you might have done it exactly sometimes we might not be doing it the best way yeah, that's true.
1: That's true. <laughs>
0: <laughs> always nice to see somebody do something that uh, you struggle with better than you, I think. Yep, correct. <laughs> <laughs> Looking at uh, Asia and New Zealand, how do we go about expanding internationally?
1: It's always a tricky one, I think, but really <laughs> New Zealand's quite... It's really like another state of Australia, which they're probably going to hate hearing that, but <laughs> I know it's independent. Uh, we are cousins, aren't we? We are cousins. And <laughs> logistically, it's only a three-hour flight. You know, Perth's, Perth is a longer flight. So, um, But for New Zealand, for me, it's really about, I think once you, you have to have your, your roots right here. So now we've got the model we want to run in Australia. We can go to New Zealand with a very clear and, and precise direction of how we want to run New Zealand. Obviously, there's different markets as in, you know, they, they do things slightly different, but our goal is still the same there. So we'll, we'll open an office there later this year pending all this, this pandemic and we'll adapt the same sales model that we have done here and hopefully we're, we're a success.
0: And when we go to Asia, of course, we've not got just a change of culture we've also got change of language. How will we cope with that?
1: Yeah, that's always a tricky one. I think it's, again, it's about being adaptable. You need to be able to pivot and change. And I think it's using local knowledge as well, you know, finding people on the ground who are bilingual and, um, again, believe in what we want to do and, and adapting to the way that Asia does things. We can't go to Asia with the Australian model because Asia is a different different ball game altogether and they have different culture different you know different ways of doing things and you have to adapt if we go there and push the australian way we will fail so we need to go there with you know local people on the ground and 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 adapt to the local way i think any any country you go to you need to adapt to their ways
0: which is pretty much like um, having offices in queensland new south wales and victoria it is exactly actually yes, because <laughs> <laughs> notwithstanding we're all on all in one place, uh, we seem to have different behaviours, don't
1: we? Oh, we definitely. I've, I notice a big difference between my Queensland, Sydney, and my Melbourne office. It's it's uh, <laughs> yeah, little different countries. <laughs>
0: But each of them great places to be. Beautiful places. It wouldn't be anywhere else. (laughs) And, of course, Queensland always has me worried wherever I go there because I never know what day it is. I'm never quite sure. They say that uh, it's beautiful uh, one day, perfect the next. Well, which one is it? (laughs) (laughs) Somewhere in between. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Well, your growth has been uh, astounding, really. Um, particularly it, it took you a little while to figure out just how you wanted your business to be as a, a lad, you were going to work for dad, as many of us, uh, did and or wanted to, what really hit you that, okay, I mean, we know that, uh, you realize, recognize that dad's business wasn't going to be yours. What made you brave enough to go, I'm going to do it myself.
1: Well, it probably was watching Dad do it from a young age as well, and seeing, you know, how hard it was, but the the success that can come with it, and the the amount of pride that he he had, you know, he showed from building. I, I just loved watching him build this from nothing into this, you know, multi million dollar business. And I think that's what always just drove me is just wanting to succeed, and just wanting wanting to build something and say that's mine. I created that. I employ these staff and these are, you know, these are my, my family and I can give back. So I think that was just, yeah.
0: Sounds like a good enough reason to me. So, <laughs> uh, you know, there's, there's passion in, in you as you say those things. And uh, I think that's very important in business that you have to be passionate. You also have to be determined. And uh, I know that one of your favorite words is persist. Yes. <laughs> <Persist>. <laughs> Did you find yourself calling on that word uh often or frequently or
1: both during the years? Oh, definitely, especially in the early years. There was so many roadblocks. And you know, some days I'd be like, oh, this is too much. I just want to go and I'm just gonna go back and work for dad. And then that little thing and ring in my head and I'd be like, just be persistent. You're resilient. Be persistent. Like keep pushing, keep pushing, and it's you know it's tiring, but you know if you do the, you know a lot of the time the results are are fantastic.
0: Absolutely, and uh, somebody introduced to me a long time ago now, but the saying "Persistence overcomes resistance every time."
1: Yes, it
0: certainly and does. it does. It, it's true. I agree, one hundred percent. Absolutely does. Lee, this has been a great conversation, learning about uh, your journey and uh, how you've dealt with it, and of course, the journey that you're planning. So very inspiring, and hopefully there are people out there who, hearing your story, will jump on board and make their own. But as we come towards the end of our conversation, what is the best tip you have
1: received from a business conversation? Uh, I think the, the best tip I could to give is any decision is better than no decision. So make, even if it's a wrong decision, at least it's a decision made and you can move on and you learn from those mistakes. It's never a, it's never a loss. Make the decision, get on with it and move on, right or wrong. Sounds good advice. And speaking of advice, Lee, what's the top piece of advice you'd like to leave listeners with today? I think it goes back to our point before. It's a term I call stickability. It's all about uh, <laughs> persistence and being resilient. Just stick to it. If you believe in it and the goal is, is what you, if you really believe in that goal, just stick at it. Be persistent and keep pushing. And eventually it'll come to you. It will. It definitely will. And most
0: importantly, before we let you go, how can our listeners connect with you to start their own business
1: conversation? Well, you can either jump on my website, which is safety or uh, find me on LinkedIn Lee rust. And I'd be happy to have a conversation there. And uh, Lee
0: rust is spelled L E I G H R U S T for rust. And safety line jalousey is safety line, all one word and continuing as one word. Jalousie is spelt J-A-L-O-U-S-I-E. So it's safetylinejalousie.com.au. Perfect. Lee, thank you. This has been a, a great conversation and good luck with your plans. And perhaps we'll uh, get to hear about how well they've gone after you've got there. Definitely.
1: Definitely. Thank you for your time today too.
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of Business Conversations with Clive Enova. Make sure you subscribe to future episodes via your favourite podcast app and you can find more business resources at cliveennevar.com.au.